Thanks for listening to the Sermons Podcast by Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Harrisville, Pennsylvania. Our purpose is to spread the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about us, check us out at harrisvilleopc.org. I want now to go to uh, the first epistle of John, chapter 2. We're going to go to chapter 2 now. And I'm going to read uh, verses 18 to 29. I'm not going to speak about them all. You know, dear people, there are a number of things that we as Christians can, can disagree about. You know, we can disagree about celebrating Christmas, Easter, following a church calendar. We can disagree about singing psalms exclusively or singing hymns exclusively. You know, they're all exclusive hymnists. You realize that? You haven't heard about that, have you? They are. Because uh, Jesus is not in the psalms. Not, not by word. Uh we could disagree about a lot of things and still be saved. You know, we could even disagree about baptizing babies or not. And we can still get along. But we can't disagree about this. If we are in disagreement over this, it's a difference between being a believer and being a non-believer. What I'm about to talk about. What John brings up in his epistle here. First John chapter 2. So let's just get started with reading verses 18 to 29. First John 2, beginning verse 18. Dear people of God here, hear ye his word, little children. It is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come... Even now are there many antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out. That they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar? But he that denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist, that denies the Father and the Son. Whosoever denies the Son, the same has not the Father. But he that acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, even eternal life. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which ye have received of him abides in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you all things, that is truth, that is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him. That when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that does righteousness is born of him. May God bless this portion of his holy word to our hearts and minds, Lord Jesus. Yes, we are here, and we're here for a reason. We're here to worship morning, noon, and night. Uh, You have given us this opportunity to do so, and we are doing so now. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would bless us. This is a uh, a proper meeting for us to have uh, before you. Uh, And... uh, 
If you're not here, of course, it's a waste of our time. But if you are here amongst your people, ministering unto us through your word and by your spirit, we are truly blessed. Bless us the more we pray in, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Paul uh, Washer, in his uh, university lectures, uh, makes the point that when some people read uh, this epistle of John, they think that the apostle is writing his letter to expose false believers in the church. And whereas that may happen, it's not the purpose of the letter. Uh, the purpose of the letter is uh, summed up nicely in chapter 5, verse 13, where the apostle writes, like he writes at the end of his gospel, John, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. He, it's written for encouragement. That's the purpose of the writing. It's to inform us and to encourage us in the way we ought to go, what we ought to believe, and how we ought to behave. Nevertheless, there is a problem. Uh, There was then a problem, and there is today and now a problem. And it may be summed up in a word, Antichrist. Antichrist. Verse 18, right? 1 John chapter 2. Though children, it is the last time, and ye have heard that Antichrist shall come. Even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. False teachers in the world, false teachers in the church. And these are they that think that they know better than everyone else. They know better than the pastor. I hope none of you think that. They know better than the elders. I hope none of you think that. They know better than the citizens of the kingdom sitting in the pews. They know better than the fathers of the faith who have hammered out the truths of Scripture over centuries. Yeah, you know better. These antichrists. They know better than all the rest. They they own a superior Gnosis, or gnosis, knowledge. They have a superior knowledge that makes their teaching and themselves exclusive. Superior. They're superior. They don't need the church, or this church, or that church, or this group, or that. They make the decision for themselves. They know best. Super saints. Super spiritual. You're right. When in reality, a super errorist and even antichrist. In the previous verses in 1 John chapter 2, he, he actually has two digressions. In the, in the second direct digression, in verses 15 to 17 of this chapter, the apostle digresses to warn about the love of the world. Not the created world, not the birds and the bees, the flowers and the trees, not the universe as we know it. But as uh, the scholar Dodd says, uh, but rather the life of human society as organized under the power of evil. Or as Westcott says, the order of finite being regarded as apart from God. He warns against that. Now, in verses 18 and following that we have just heard and read, he returns to his principal thesis, uh, says uh, scholar John Stott, who puts it this way, namely, the main thesis of the epistle according to Stott, and he's not wrong, is discrimination between the true and the false by means of tests. Discrimination between the true and the false by means of tests. To the moral and social tests, which he has already expounded upon in verses 
uh, 3 to 11, he now adds doctrinal tests. He first draws a clear distinction between heretics and genuine Christians. In verses 18 to 21. Then he defines the nature and the effect of the heresy in verses 22 and 23. And finally describes the two safeguards against heresy, which his, uh, his readers already know about, in verses 24 to 27. He says, you already know, right? God's already taught you these things. So there's very much uh, to talk about in verses 18 to 29. And Stott has provided an ideal outline for a three-point sermon. However, I'm not going to do it. Uh, I think we had recently someone say he doesn't do normally three points, but he did so anyway. But I'm not going to do it. Because there's just too much to talk about. I could talk about the address in verse 18, little children. What's that referring to? Why is it called little children? Is there something more to it than just he's older and we're younger? Something more to that. And I, that needs a little unpacking. Uh, how about the last times? What's that mean? Is that different from the last days? Is that different from the last hour? So all that going on. Then there's Antichrist, which uh, is exclusively used by John in Johannine uh, epistles, excommunicating themselves from the body. What's that about? There is the, uh, the chrisma, the unction, the anointing of the Holy One. There's that to talk about as well. And so on. Too much to talk about in verses 18 to 29 to do it justice. So I'm going to focus on verses 22 and 23. Uh, the two safeguards, as Stott calls them, uh, uh, put in place by John in verses 24 to 27. I'll leave for alone for another time, but focus our attention on the nature and the effect of the heresy. Now, we have some uh, people coming up for membership shortly, as we did last time. And the second question in the vows for membership asked, Do you believe in one living and true God, in whom eternally there are three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who are the same in being and equal in power and glory, and that Jesus Christ is God the Son? That's the question to which they are to answer in the affirmative. If not, they're not saved. See how important a credible profession is. You can't answer that. You're not saved. Doesn't mean you understand the whole thing. But it goes to the heart of the issue. John brings to the fore in verses 22 and 23. And as well in 1 John 4, verse 3. Notice in 1 John 4, verse 3, which, which we've been there already. Every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereby ye have heard of it, uh, that should come, and even now is already in the world. Okay? So every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Hmm. So notice that the denial of the Antichrist is essential that Jesus came. Yes, he was born. But the apostle is given to say he came in verse uh, verse 3 of chapter 4, right? You see that? And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come. Yes, he was born, but that's not the word John uses. He uses the word come for a reason. And that reason is to imply that he came from heaven, that he is with the Father God in heaven before he was born, 
before he took on flesh. That's the implication. That's why he uses the word come. Yes, he was born. So there's an emphasis there uh, as well that he was with the father before he was born of a pure virgin. That the Son of God came to earth in the form of a man, a babe, that he put on flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten Son, full of grace and glory. Whereas in 1 John 2, coming now to verses 22 and 23, he says, Who is a liar? But he that denies that Jesus is the Christ. And then notice. Notice what, notice what this denial means. He's a liar who denies that Jesus is Christ. He is Antichrist. And he denies both Father and Son. That's important to pick up on. No matter what this person thinks, no matter what this person knows, no matter what this person says, even if he says he has done this and that in the name of Jesus, if he denies that Jesus is the Christ, He's not saved. See, this is not a, uh, a difference we can have. This is not a difference that, uh, a disagreement that we can agree to disagree. It's a matter of eternal life and death. Clearly based upon the word. Notice, well, <clears throat> this has to do with Doctrine. Doctrine, oh my, doctrine, here you go again, you reform people. Doctrine. Oh my, you fanatics. Doctrine is crucial. It breeds life into our Christian actions. We're not random people. We're not this, these emotions that just blow, splatter all over the place. Doctrine matters. Greatly. It gives direction to our practice. Why we're here today. Why there is a Sabbath worship. Why we do what we do and say what we say. We are not Christians by instinct or accident or random selection. But we are Christians by choice, sanctified choice to be sure, given by the Holy Spirit, yes. Choice nonetheless. We are saved by grace through faith. However, it's a reasonable faith, a logos, a reason, a reasonable faith, as Bobbing points out. We're not. Yes. Emotional, superstitious, randomized people. And we believe this. Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who came from heaven, put on flesh, dwelt among us, Emmanuel, God with us, walking among us, walking among us like, like God walked among in the garden with Adam and Eve. Not quite the same, but he was with us, among us. Jesus Christ is divine and human, two natures in one person, God and man, perfect God, perfect man. And reject this and you reject God. You realize, not only the Trinity, but the person of Christ, that he was both divine and human. Not a spark of the divine, as some people like to say. He was fully divine. And fully human. Not 
human in the sense that his soul is divine, but his body was human. No, no, he was body and soul human. And he was also the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, fully divine. Get that wrong. Or don't believe that or deny that. You're not a Christian. Simple test. That's what John's doing. He's testing our morality and our social in verses 3 to 11. Now he's testing our doctrine. You fail? You pass? You care? Reject this and you reject God. Get this wrong. And without a course correction, like our children might have it wrong. You know, they might not understand just yet and still be Christians. But if there's not a course correction in their life and in their, in their minds and in their hearts, if there's not a course correction, then you head straight and off the precipice, plunging yourself and all that follow you into perdition itself. How utterly important right belief is. Truth matters most. There is no substitute for the truth. Follow falsehood, follow the lie, and you follow the devil to his street and his address, which is hell 666. Dr. Matters. Some more clarity, I think, would prove invaluable for all of us, and especially our young people. I'm not talking about our infants, but those of us who are able to uh, do math, study science, learn language, to understand a little bit more. Don't you think? Where am I getting at? Well, I want to speak about a bit about the Trinity. What is it? What's this doctrine of the Trinity all about? Unique to Christianity makes us who we are. It's a huge question. There's books. I've, I've told you, there's books written about the Trinity. There's a lot to say about the Trinity. It's, it's much more than you think. But I'm just going to give us... A few points. Three, actually. And the first thing that I want to say about the doctrine of the Trinity that that must be said right up front, if we're going to be honest, that though it can be stated concisely as it is in the second membership vow, it can be stated concisely. Very concisely, very carefully. Yes, but it's beyond our full comprehension, nonetheless. It's beyond our full... Uh, some creaturely comparisons have been made, like the Trinity is like an egg with the shell, and you got the white section and the yolk. God's not calling us to think of him as egg yolk and stuff. Or water, H2O has three phases, right? It has the, uh, the liquid, the solid, the gaseous phase, and that's like, no, it's not. God's not calling us to believe in a water God or an egg God. Those are silly examples. It doesn't help our understanding very much. It, it, it distorts it. To think of it as a prison where you shine a light, white light goes through the prison and it breaks up into colored light. Augustine used love to Tullian as well. And Augustine rightly points out that God is love. And that you could not, Augustine said this, that you could not say that God is love, which was what the Bible says that he is, God is love, and you could not say that unless you have a trinity. Think about it. 
You could not say that unless you have a trinity. You could not say God is love because who's he love? Now, if you say, well, he created us and he loves us. But we have a beginning. God is love. God is eternal. God is eternal love. He's everlasting love. He has to have the love in himself. There has to be an object for him to love in order for him to love. Love. The father loves the son. The son loves the father. And that is embodied by the Holy That relationship, that, that love is embodied by the person of the Holy Spirit. So there is eternal love in the Godhead. Without the Trinity, there is no love. It falls apart. And you couldn't say God is love. Love what? Love whom? Love how? It's not, it's not there. You have to have an object. And it has to be eternal. It can't be dependent upon something that was created. Because that would make God dependent upon a creature. But he is love. Not that he loves, but he is love. So it has to be an eternal thing. <clears throat> Hence, God is love, always was, always is, always will be love. That's who he is. That's uh, what he is. That's how he is. This leads uh, inexorably to relationship. There's a relationship in the Trinity, the Godhead. A communion within God. This would not be the case if there were only one person. But there are three. A community of persons. In one single essence. Hmm. Amazing. And it's amazing that God invites us into this, this communion of love. God invites us into this communion of love with the Holy Trinity. Not as gods, or not to become gods. But to experience true and lasting love. The prophet Jeremiah says, For God, under the inspiration of the Spirit, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And what do you say to that? What do I say to that? God tells me that I have loved you everlastingly. I've invited you into the experience of a, the love of God. The love that God has for his son. The love that the son has for the father. The love that they both have in the spirit. Embodied by the Holy Spirit. The spirit called the spirit of love. I've invited you. What do you say to that? Oh, I have this pain in my chest, and I have this headache, and I have these kids, and I have this problem, and I have that problem. Fix this, Lord. Fix that, Lord. Care for this. Care for that, Lord. No. And I hear that God loves me everlastingly. What do I say? What do you say? I say, at least I should say, I ought to say, I know, Lord. I know, Father. I know you love me. Consider my cause. Consider what's, what's going on. But I know you love me. Uh, this in turn brings uh, us uh, to uh, briefly consider a, a third thing. We <coughs> consider that it's beyond comprehension, the Trinity, that it's a, uh, uh, it's a commonwealth, a community of love. It's a relationship that God is offering. 
And then this third uh, point that I want to make about the Trinity is it, uh, it is uh, the difference between essence and person. I'm going to talk about that. And that's a little philosophical, it gets theological. I try not to be that way so much. But the Belgian Confession states, it states it really well. We believe in one only God who is one single essence in which are three persons. That's it. One single essence in which there are three persons. In an article written in the uh, Standard Bearer, uh, Reverend uh, James Lanning points out, there's one essence of God. I just want to read a little bit here and then open it up just a little bit more to us. Uh, It's easy to understand essence, right? The word essence comes from a verb that means to be. I am. Who are you, God? I am that I am. It means to be. It's being. That's what essence means, being. When we talk about God as the almighty God or the eternal God, we are talking about God's essence, right? He's immutable. He's unchangeable. He is almighty, He is all-powerful, right? He is all-knowing. He is eternal. These are things that speak to his essence. Not his person, necessarily, but his essence. So, for example, the unity of God's essence is expressed in the Athanasian Creed. The first and somewhat lengthy section is is, uh, about the Trinity. Speaking about the one essence, there are a number of statements like this. The Father eternal... The Son, eternal. And the Holy Ghost, eternal. And yet, there are not three eternals. You know, this is not a Marvel movie here. When we speak about God, eternal, we speak about one, essence. In essence, he's eternal. That's it. Or when we speak about him as a father, is almighty. The Son is almighty. The Holy Ghost is almighty. And yet, there are not three almighties. We're speaking about the essence of God. He's almighty. He's eternal. He's immutable. Those kind of things speak to his essence. When we refer to God as uh, eternal, almighty, or his other attributes, we're talking about his essence. And so that's what I already said. There are three persons, though, uh, in God. That means that the one almighty, there are three what? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we often say a person is one who says, I. A person is the subject of one's actions, and there are three persons in God. means that there are three that say, I. Jesus Christ says, I. Father, I. The Holy Spirit. Okay. Well, let's unpack this a little bit more. But before I do, you may be apt to say, well, you mean to tell me that I'm supposed to understand all this, follow all this, remember all this, and explain it to my children so that they understand? No, simply state, there is one God. There is one God. Can you say that? There's one God? There's one God. The true and the living God. Can you remember that? There is one God, the true and the living God. Can you remember that? Okay. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You certainly can remember that. One God, three persons. That's what you need to start your children with, your grandchildren. You cannot forget this. You cannot ignore this. You cannot give them all the stories and tell them this and tell them that, all the Bible things, and leave out this fundamental point. You're setting them up for disaster. You're setting them up for Antichrist if they don't understand this to some extent. They can't confess this with some idea. And we're not contradicting. We're not saying there's one God, there's three gods. We're saying there's one God, three persons. You say, well, well, I don't fully understand it. Yeah, that's true. I don't fully understand it either. But we need to 
start somewhere and develop as much as we can this this doctrine in our heads. But I do want to warn you that uh, that's the rub. I can't completely fully understand it. I know what I'm saying. I'm I'm being precise. I know that the the language I'm using is is precision language, and it has to be that way, and you don't want to change it. Uh, But I don't fully understand it, and there's the rub. Anyone saying, I do fully understand the Godhead, and I can teach you that is a liar. And you know who is a father of lies, and who was a liar from the beginning. So anyone that comes to you and says, I fully comprehend the Godhead, I I understand it completely, right away, antennae go up. Should go up. Are you following? Are you following this? This is a matter of life and death, people. Anyone who rejects the truth that Jesus is the Son of God in flesh appearing, that is, became a man, anyone who rejects that is Antichrist. That's pretty clear, right? You and I are to believe this truth wholeheartedly, even though there is mystery involved. Not magic, not uh, mysticism, but mystery. This is why we're given to, uh, we're given, as John puts it, here in verse 20, but ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. A better translation would be, and you all know. That's probably a better translation of this. Ye have an unction from the Holy One, and you all, or all of you, know. Know what? The truth. That Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who put on flesh. That's what you know. You all know that. How do you know that? By being given the unction, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. That's how you know. That's how I know that the Trinity is true. And that the precision language that we use is as accurate as you can get. I know it, even though I don't understand the Trinity fully. Hey, dear people, think about it. I, uh, I can't fully comprehend the Godhead, but I believe it. I do not fully comprehend the person of Christ. That he's fully divine and human. I believe it. I don't know what heaven's going to be like. Not as I can't explain it. I can't explain it in, in all detail. But I believe it. I mean, I don't even, I, I don't see an angel, but I know he's here. I know he's watching over us. I believe it. I don't see it. I don't sense it. But I believe it. How is it that I believe these things? How is it that I believe the Godhead? How is it that I believe the person of Jesus Christ? How is it that I believe in heaven's glory? How is it that I believe that angels are watching over, that God's ministering spirits are sent to us to watch us? How do I know this? How, why is it that I believe it? Because I'm given an unction. Because I've been born from above. Because I've been given the mind of Christ by the Holy Spirit, to believe these things that I don't fully understand just yet or see. And if you don't believe it, maybe you don't have the Spirit. You need the Spirit to believe this stuff. It's not just an intellectual thing. There is some mystery involved in it for sure. Not magic. Not mysticism. Not emotionalism, but mystery. How the Spirit works in us to will and do of God good pleasure. How He causes us to believe the things that we don't fully comprehend. 
as of yet. So then, the nature and the effect of the heresy, if there is no trinity, there is no God of love. The trinity is fundamental to our understanding that God so loved the world, that God loves us. You cannot have that love, that relational love, without the Trinity. There is absolutely no foundation for salvation. Not a sweet salvation. Because that is all of love and all of grace and all of of freedom. It's freely given by God who loves us, who cares for us. You can't have that salvation. There is no gospel of salvation without the Trinity. Do you see how important the Trinity is? There is no salvation. How defective the witness of so many is. Oh, God has saved us from all our sins. He has taken the punishment for us so that we are no longer... We're cleared. We're clean, right? Well, okay, a judge says, you're free to go. I don't hold this against you. Your crimes are forgiven. Go. That's a defective gospel. That's a defective gospel. That's a defective gospel presentation. Do you know that? Because it doesn't have the Trinity. It doesn't have the love that God has for his son given to us. And the reason why we're saved is in love. Not simply because we've been declared not guilty. It's part of it. It's true. But why? Because Jesus is a nice guy, took on our sins? No. It's because he loved us. Like the Father loves him, he loves us. John Stott argues that uh, John, the apostle, John's black and white contrasts are heartily clear, are, are healthily clear-sighted. Opposing views are not to him complementary insights, right? Well, we can agree to disagree. We can... No, no. Opposing views are truth or error. If we claim to enjoy fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie. According to John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. He who says he knows God but disobeys his commandments is a liar. That's in 1 John chapter 1 as well. But what shall we be said of him who denies that Jesus is the Christ? We must pronounce him the liar, liar par excellence. Indeed, you can tell that this is the, the arch lie or the arc lie. The, the chief lie. Because he who perpetrates it is none other than Antichrist. The extreme seriousness of the lie is that a second denial is implicit in the first, says Stott, pointing out to the scripture here that he who denies the son denies the father. As we, we see in verses 22 and 23, right? Who is the liar but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ? That person that denies that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God put on, taken on flesh, he is the Antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. Mm. In verse 23, Whosoever denies the Son, the same has not the Father. But he that acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Are you reading this? 
Are you reading this well with, with an understanding? This is talking about a confession. Not a private one. But a public one. Publicly denies the son. He has not the father. If he publicly acknowledge, acknowledges the son. He has the father also. You're not talking about someone in a dream thinking this stuff up. He's talking about a public acknowledgement, a confession of sorts. Dear family, uh, you cannot, do not have a proper relationship with Jesus, yes, but also with the Father as well without a proper confession. Before men and before God. You just can't. Your Christianity is definitely awkward, to say the least. It's probably non-existent. You don't have a confession to make. You don't have a Christianity, really. It's crucial that a proper, credible profession be made based upon the truth that has been made known to the church, the pillar and ground of truth, for the sake of our eternal salvation in Christ. That Christ come in the flesh to have us adopted into God's perfect family of love as the sons of God. I want to end with this thought. You heard about uh, from Galatians already. In Romans chapter 8. Go here. And the Apostle Paul uses the Greek word in verse 14, rias, which is son. Followed by adoption in 15, followed by children in verses 16 and 17. But, but let me just, just have us hold this thought. Verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Yes. There's a different word for children, which he uses in verses 16 and 17. But he uses sons of God here. Why? Because he's a misogynist? Because he comes from a a misogynistic culture? And so it's a patriarchal society and that's what they think. Come on. Really? You do not know the scriptures. You don't understand the scriptures. That's not where God's coming from. That's pathetic. That's pitiful. That's it's silly. That's childlike to think that. Oh, this is a patriarch society. A patriarch society. It's a misogynistic culture. And that's why he uses the word sons. No. It's the reason why he does that. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Now remember remember the Trinity of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has adopted us. And it says that he has adopted us as sons, referring to all of us as sons. Why? Not because he's trying to emphasize or put the emphasis on maleness. That's silly 21st century reading. The reason why he says that I have adopted you as my sons is to help us to understand that he loves us. The father loves his adopted children like with the same type of love he has for his begotten son. 
the emphasis is on God's love to us. He loves you as he loves his own son. And likewise, he would have us love him like his, like his own son loves the father. That's why that word is there. That's why he calls us the sons of God. Not to portray maleness, but to portray his love. I love you, my adopted sons, like I love my own son. And you ought to love me and delight in me like my own son, Jesus Christ, loves me. And he has invited us into that relationship as his adopted sons and daughters. And may that be so for each and every one of us as we consider these things prayerfully and consider how important the Trinity is and how important that doctrine that God is love is and how we are called the sons of God because we are loved like his son. And we are to love him back like his own son loves the Father. Let us pray. Heavenly Lord, we are thankful to you for this day and for these truths that are in the scriptures. We are thankful that you have given us the mind of Christ that we may begin to understand these things, <clears throat> that you have given us a new heart uh, in, through the Spirit so, so that we have an unction so that we can believe these things and confess these things with, with, with somewhat of an understanding, not a full, complete understanding, but an understanding nonetheless given to us by you. And we are asking, Heavenly Father, that you continue to bless us and strengthen us and prosper that religion sent into our hearts from heaven by you through the Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in his name, the name of Jesus. Amen.